At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, God, I'm grateful for this message that I got to kind of wrestle with this week. Um, I thank you for all of the content behind it, for the hope and the promise, and that you spoke to Mary and Elizabeth so long ago. Uh, this is not like a story of our grandparents or great-grandparents, but this is a story that just seems very far beyond us, and it's still relevant, and it still speaks to us, and it still speaks hope because it's you who is uh, speaking. So I pray that in that same way that you would be speaking through me, uh, a vessel who will you know, come and go just as so many have. Uh, help us all to have ears to hear. May your Holy Spirit just take, take over control of us and let us listen, let our hearts be moved. Uh, and may it all be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I uh, wanted to start today off with a little bit of uh, trivia for the group here. This will be interesting. It was going to be like almost a fun fact, but then I was like, no, no, no. I think uh, if I can give some, some, the one thing about me that may, some of you guys may not know is that I, I really like the types of sermons where like I say something and people are like, amen, or like, you know, I like the, the back and forth. I was very, very like uh, present in the churches that I grew up in. And now I feel like I'm preaching to a picture, uh, which is kind of a bummer. So uh, please don't like, you know, yell or especially like hurl negative comments at me. Again, sensitive. But, uh, but you know, if there's like this feeling of that is correct what you said, John, then I want to exclaim it. Like, you know, I, I might appreciate it. Maybe not exactly in those words, but I might appreciate it. So now I'm going to force you guys to say something because I'm going to ask you a question. And if no one gets it right, the sermon's just over. So, you know, be on top of your game. Well, someone said, wow. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> what a bold, bold uh, strategy John's, John's using today. All right, here's my question. Uh, well, first, let me preface it. The idea of baptism. If we look, if we're reading through the Bible, especially the Old and New Testament, baptism is kind of strange because baptism doesn't appear at all in the Old Testament. There's no intentional dunking or even drizzling in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, when we start talking about the story of Jesus, it just kind of like appears. And what I've heard and what I, what I trust as far as that explanation is that baptism appeared, kind of became a Jewish custom within the few hundred years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And the significance of the water, and here comes the trivia part, the significance of the water in baptism is an intentional callback to a very significant story in the Old Testament. What's the story? Okay, thanks, Zach. All right. That's the only question I had. So, all right, we got a, uh, do we have a prize? Andrew, we have a prize for Zach? Oh, gosh, dang it. All right. 
He doesn't get that. We need those. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach and I are in the same seminary program, so I'm kind of bummed I didn't tell him not to answer that. But uh, all right, thanks, Zach. You win 10 points in heaven. Uh, Okay, but yes, he's absolutely right. The story of it was the Exodus story. The whole significance was you're going in the water and you're going out of the water. Because if you know the Exodus story, the big conclusion to it is that after all these plagues and all these like, you know, theological fireworks happen, the Israelites are entering into the Red Sea, literally walking on the surface of the ground because God has made the waters hover. And you could say in a sense that they are entering into the waters as slaves, but when they come out on the other side, they're free. And so that was the significance for the Jews when they started baptizing. It was, you're going down and enslaved, but when you're coming back up, you're coming back as a free person. Now, there's a lot when you look into the Old Testament of, of similar types of ceremonies and customs like this. A lot of them have this purpose of not just saying, look back at this cool thing that happened, but it's a way of saying, look back at this thing that happened and remember that what happened here has a lot of significance for what's going to happen here. We look back and remember the goodness of God to us, and we can look forward and remember that God will be just as good then than he was in the past. And so now we're entering into this, into this story, the first chapter of Luke. It's this really kind of beautiful story of uh, both Mary and Elizabeth getting these like kind of similar visions and the angel of the Lord appearing before them. And so in the passage that we read earlier, We have Mary and Elizabeth, Elizabeth the mom or future mom of John the Baptist and Mary, of course, the mother of Jesus. They're sharing these visions that they had and Elizabeth is like exclaiming like how joyful she is that Mary was just promised something that speaks incredible volumes to the story of Israel, which is that this guy who's been talked about for hundreds of years Like, he might actually be knocking at the door. He might be close. And this is really exciting. And so what I want us to do, and we're going to kind of, you know, weave a little bit today, is that I want us to understand the hope of Mary and Elizabeth, specifically within their kind of like their culture, their time, their little space in history. And then ask ourselves, what does that mean? What, What does that hope say for us today? Uh, and what will that hope say for us tomorrow? So, and then I also want to just preface, this was like a, a, an interesting sermon for me to write as well, because I usually try to write in points. I'll be like, boom, and then boom, and then boom, and then conclusion. This one, there are no points, or I guess there is only one point. It's all meant to be kind of like this linear flow that, le- that leads into the conclusion. So, uh, Hopefully that, that's not super, super rough for you guys, but I'm going to try my best to make it as cohesive as possible. So here's my thing. Thank you. <laughs> All right. It's not where I expected it to be, but cool. All right. He's <laughs> like, hey, man, try your best, John. Don't be confusing. Okay. Uh, so here's my thing. To understand Mary and Elizabeth and why they're so joyful about this hope that's laid out before them, you have to understand the story of Israel. And to understand the story of Israel, 
you have to understand, or at the very least, have listened to the first six minutes of the 1998 film, Prince of Egypt. Now, uh, in case you guys have never been here before, and they're like, oh, movie clip time. No, there's no movie clip. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to try to paint a picture of what that was. See, uh, first off, I'm biased because it's one of my favorite movies in the world. I, I love that whole movie, and I love that song specifically, the song Deliver Us. But it's sung by this, like, chorus of, you can only imagine, like, hundreds of the Israelites who you can see in all of these positions being oppressed by the Egyptians as their slaves. So you see them like, you know, falling down in these like giant pits of mud and you can see them like kind of forming the cubes that will be formed into the pyramid and they're, they're building the sphinx and all these figures and stuff like that. But you can feel what I love so much about this movie and this song is you can feel the weight of the suffering that they're experiencing. And I think you can even hear it in the lyrics because the lyrics, they literally read out like one of our psalms. They say, deliver us, hear our call, deliver us, Lord of all, remember us here in this burning sand. Deliver us, for there is a land you promised us. Deliver us to the promised land. And then another part, it says, deliver us, hear our prayer. Deliver us from despair, these years of slavery have grown too cruel to stand. And then again, it pleads, deliver us to the promised land. Now, the children of Israel were very, very familiar with this kind of plea for deliverance. If, you, if you're even like a little familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the children of Israel were kind of consistently getting the butt end of their circumstances. They found themselves regularly in slavery, they found themselves regularly being victims of infanticide, literally the murder of babies, their own children being slaughtered because of other nations. They found themselves victim to constant warfare. They were held captive by larger nations that would rule over and oppress them. And even at times they were exiled from their land, which wouldn't be as big of a deal if it weren't for the fact that God had literally given them this land. And there were others who would steal it from them and cast them out. Israel was familiar with this call of deliverance. God, deliver us from where we stand. Break these shackles from us. However, if we know the Old Testament too, and I'm sure many of you are kind of thinking this right now, we know it's not quite that simple the, the Israelites in the Old Testament were not exactly upstanding citizens and scholars, and oftentimes the same types of uh, evil nations that were such a hard rock of oppression to them, they were the same nations that they were oftentimes too buddy-buddy with. The foreign uh, pagan gods that would, uh, that would order so much pain and destruction against Israel were often gods they found themselves bending their knees to. The same violence and sin that was often uh, used externally to inflict violence on Israel, that was the same sin that lived inside as well. Literally, the same thing that was harming them from the outside was also dissolving and deteriorating their hearts on the inside. It was sin. They were, you know, 
selfish. They were violent. They were unkind, unloving. And above all, they were unfaithful and disobedient to God, the God who loved them and cared a lot about them. Now, before I uh, make anyone think that I'm trying to like paint the, the Jews of the Old Testament as these like horrible humans, they were not meant to be like upstanding to begin with. They were literally meant to be a portrait of humanity. The same sins of the people of the Old Testament that we see is, are often the same types of things that we ourselves are drawn to, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. So they knew the, the, the full double-sided dagger that sin was. They knew that sin was a thing that hurt them from the inside by the fact that it distorted their, their minds, it distorted their judgment, it made them do the wrong thing, but also the effects of it on the outside, it caused pain, it caused suffering, it caused war. And so they knew, Israel knew this great story of sin, this great um, whole sin that had such a tremendous effect on all the world. But as the story of Israel concludes in the Old Testament, it's not this same feeling of despair that they would often feel because God, who is walking with them through so many of these times, and often even in the midst of uh, the pain they were dealing with, God was very, very present, sometimes in causing the pain as a way to bring them back, but other times comforting them from the pain as well. God was not just sitting back. He wasn't like this deist watchmaker God who was just letting things unfold. God was present with them. And God, in, in all these little spots and all these little like stars that trace together to form like a constellation, God was drawing out this map of better days to come. He was saying and showing them that despite the fact that Israel did not know what was good for them and would literally constantly like deface and defile themselves, God was going to give them a way out. And God was not just going to open the door and say, please, please, please. God was going to take his people and he was going to deliver them himself. God promised them a time where as much as they knew violence and war and destruction, he promised them a time that peace would descend on the earth. He promised them a time when the shame of their sin would, would be no more. In fact, the, the sin of their sin would be no more, and they would be cleansed, and they would be purified to never again defile themselves. And on top of that, their hearts would be made new. They would be given more pure, more beautiful desires for the way that God has made life to be. God would bring peace and goodness and, and flourishing to the world. And all of the sin, both externally and internally, would wither. And that is, you know, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> that sounds really good. But... As with everyone, I would, I would say, Mary and Elizabeth were still, in a sense, colored by their, their culture's expectations. I think all of us have this responsibility to be very, very careful whenever we read the scriptures, whenever we read what God is doing, to remind ourselves that like, we, we can't look at this stuff in a vacuum. 
We can't look at this stuff as if we were the first person to read the Bible. We have to understand that there are ways that we're kind of conditioned to project meaning even where it's not, and we have to be cautious with that. See, the issue with Israel, I would say even at the point of Mary and Elizabeth, was that they had experienced this kind of stuff literally for centuries. They were captive to the Babylonians. They were captive to the Assyrians. They were captive to the Persians. They were captive to the Greeks. And even now at this point, when Jesus is about to be born, they are captive again to Rome, one of the biggest empires to ever stand on the earth. And they're bitter about it. They're really frustrated about it because they've experienced this before over and over and over again. And all they want, all they have in their hearts is this plea for deliverance and for retribution. What many people wanted from Jesus when he was born wasn't just the Messiah who would do all of these things to remake and recreate the creation that has gotten so badly touched, but they wanted this Jesus who was going to like swing a sword and topple Rome and, and present Israel as this champion of the world again. They wanted military power and they wanted economic luxury. It sounds pretty familiar. Many of, many of the uh, people who listened to Jesus speak and saw what Jesus did, they were frustrated by this mentality. Why is this dude sleeping on a hillside, talking to like 10 people? He should be rallying these crowds of people. He should probably at least be doing some kind of kung fu training. Bet the dude can't even defend himself. Like, there was this frustration, like, this is not the Jesus who's supposed to be, like, this, he's supposed to be mighty. And so a lot of people were just like, whatever, he's probably just another charlatan because we've seen fake messiahs before. And so many of them went away disappointed and frustrated by the Jesus who was literally everything we, had, we were told he would be, but he wasn't what we wanted him to be. Now, I've heard this, this argument before, this idea that people had two, had, had a very like uh, troubling view of Jesus and that presented problems for them. And I've heard a lot of people say, yeah, the problem was they wanted Jesus to be like this Kung Fu warrior and Jesus was actually a, a servant above all and that rather than winning by imposing death on his enemies, he allowed death to affect him. Like, I, I've heard this before. I'm sure many of you guys have. We could call that hope that the people of Israel had, that hope for deliverance, that hope that they would not always walk with this big beam tied to their backs, and I would say that uh, it was misguided, but I would add to it that I don't think it's just misguided. I think it's too small. And so if I did have a point today, which I guess I do, I didn't write this down in my notes. If I did have a point today, it would be to ask you guys this question, which is, is our hope in God too small? Is your hope in God too small? What do I mean by that? I'll use an example. Imagine uh, there's a, you're, you're a soldier, maybe enlisted in some army somewhere. You're, uh, you were sent to fight in this 
war that's been going on for, let's say, close to a decade, but you've been stationed overseas far, far, far from home for, let's say, about a year, year and a half. You're, uh, you're short on rations, your supplies are, are short, ammunition is low. But on top of that, like, you've been experienced in this world of, like, death and violence for a really, really long time. And so you think of all the friends that you've lost, but you also think about the lives that you've taken yourself. And so in a state of desperation, you write this letter to your commander, whatever your higher up would be. And you say, please, like, send reinforcements, send, send food, send water, send something. Send something to give me some semblance of hope here. And within like two hours of you sending that letter back, you get a response. And the response is actually not from your commander. It's from the highest level up. And they say, look, I, I read what you said, and I'm not going to send you any reinforcements. I'm not going to send you any more supplies. I'm not going to give you any food. I'm going to end the war, and I'm going to send you home. That's how I'm going to respond to this. I'm going to send you back home to your friends and families, and I'm going to send all these people back home to their friends and families. And I'm just going to put an end to this once and for all. Now, maybe we don't resonate with the military analogy, so I thought of an alternate one. I think maybe a little bit more relatable. At least it would be a little bit for myself. Imagine you're uh, a child again, maybe 11 or 12, and you're being bullied. Uh, I remember being bullied myself not a wonderful experience, would give it a very low review on Yelp, but ultimately I would say that there was the immediate embarrassment of feeling like just put down by others, but there's also just this extreme sense of isolation to it. It's not great. It's not great. Now imagine you're in middle school, you're being bullied, you have been for a while, your self-confidence is shot, you're, you're starting to feel distance from your friends because you're like, why don't they protect me from this stuff? This feels so unfair. And so you talk to your teacher after class and you say, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, please, could you transfer me out of this class? This kid sitting behind me every day, he pulls my hair, he pushes me down, he puts stuff down my shirt, he calls me names, he makes me feel bad about myself. He talks about me to other people. He just, he just makes me feel like, like I'm less than a human being. Could you please let me get out of this class? And uh, the teacher's response is, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. What I am going to do is I'm going to talk to this bully who's been doing this, and he's going to be disciplined for it. He's going to be punished in a, in a way that's not cruel, but that's fair. And then I'm going to sit down with you and this student for an hour every week. And we're going to talk to each other, not with any purpose in mind, not with any anger management course, but we're going to learn to talk to each other like humans. The three of us together are going to learn how to love each other, are going to learn how to be friends and how to be kind. And then I'm also going to talk to this guy's family, not just to rat him out, but I'm going to find out what's going on in this kid's life that has made him treat others so poorly, I'm going to get all the way down to the root of this situation because I love you, but I love them too. And just addressing this at the surface just wouldn't sit right with me. I'm going to get all the way in. 
It sounds pretty nice. Now, when we explore a topic like oppression, it gets murky. Because oppression is one of those terms that's like collected a lot of like cultural baggage to where everyone has like a very different view of like what oppression actually is. And it just gets weird. So I'm really going to try my darndest to have like a, a, a prominent, a healthy view of what that looks like. Because some of us would just say that oppression is, is nothing short of, of systematic violence, of like, like Jim Crow racism, of, of Sudanese genocide, of, of all these terrible things. It has to be the top, top, top ways to suffer. And then others would say, no, oppression can be small. Oppression can be emotional. Oppression can be, can be uh, in a small, like, relational way. And some of us, if we think of the first definition, would say, well, I'll, I'll never know oppression. I'm not going to be, you know, a, the survivor of a genocide anytime soon. But be careful that we don't generalize that view because more and more we're having, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of refugees moving into our city. Those people know oppression in the first definition. And I think we should offer them that. I think we must offer them that. But for the rest of us, it can be tempting to conclude that uh, this sense, this idea of like being delivered from oppression, being delivered from these horrible circumstances we've inherited, whether it's the war that you're in or whether it's being bullied as a kid. And we wonder like, what, what does that actually look like for us? I think the reason that I'm pointing these things out is because I think that for myself and maybe for many of us, we have this tendency to look at uh, um, these things in very dualistic ways. Jesus either saves us from our physical pains. He saves us from, our, from the debt in our bank accounts. He saves us from all of these uh, uh, physical, tangible ways. Or, or he only saves us in spiritual manners. I think there was definitely a time in my life when I would have said, man, it stinks how much oppression there is all over the world. But Jesus died for my sins, so I guess, it's, I guess it's okay. And you know, maybe that can make things better. And of course, I'm not going to deny that. Like there's too much in the gospel. If there's too much in all that Christ represents that would encourage me to realize that I am a sinner in need of grace every day. But I'm wondering if we, we've been drawn and so comfortable with the type of gospel that only speaks to the morally guilty that we don't have a gospel to preach to those whose main source of pain and suffering is not their own moral failure. What kind of gospel do we have to preach to a Jewish person in a concentration camp? What type of gospel do we have to preach to an African in the midst of South African apartheid? What gospel do we have to preach to uh, religious minorities who are being burned and oppressed all over the world today? Or, or, or even like what gospel do we have to preach to uh, someone ravaged by some awful, awful mental disease? Do we have a gospel for everyone I hope so. So my question is, again, is our hope too small to see that there is a coming triumph over all 
of evil that is just as big as the God that promised it to us. I'm going to say that again. Is our hope too small to see that there is a triumph over evil that is coming that is just as big as the God who promised it to us? I'll say this. Uh, It's one of the reasons why uh, there are a a number of churches in our country that kind of bum me out. I'm not speaking slander. I'm just saying they bum me out just a little bit, poquito, not much. Many of the, there are a lot of uh, denominations and a lot of traditions that when they look at the gospel, they say, we have to help those in need. And so they flood the soup kitchens and they serve the homeless and they're serving the refugees and they're doing it right now. And what a blessing. What a fulfillment of what Jesus has been saying when he says to look out for people like that. But they also don't have this strong anchored hope in the God that is not just addressing the surface level things, but is also diving deep into our hearts and cleansing sin and has promised to do so perfectly one day. Their hope may be too small. But I'm also bummed out by the churches who have placed all of their hope in in this change of hearts, in this sometimes individual kind of gift-sized, personalized gospel that each of us gets to hold on to as one little person. And my whole hope in the gospel is my hope in myself. My whole hope in the gospel is my hope that my sins will be forgiven. But there's no hope for the rest of the world. There's no hope for the oppressed person. There's no hope for those enduring violence. There's no hope enduring. Uh, there's no hope for those who are just as marked by sin as the rest of us. It's both. Like, it's not one or the other. It's both. And honestly, it's one of the reasons why, like, we, we went to Lake Charles. I've said this a million times, so I'm sorry for those of you hearing it for the first time. We went to Lake Charles to, to help rebuild some houses that got torn up by, uh, to- by hurricanes last year. It was awesome. It was amazing. It was a beautiful experience. Because, like, not only do I have faith in the gospel that says that my sins are forgiven and motivates me to work, and work out my salvation, to repent of my sins, to confess the ways that I have wronged other people, to try to walk in holiness as Jesus is inviting me to. I believe in that gospel. But I also believe in a gospel that says that one day hurricanes won't swoop through a town and rip roofs off the tops. And until that day comes, I'm pretty okay with having a nice long road trip with my pal Zach and then doing some flooring like I know what I'm doing. Like I'm living out of a promise. I'm trying to live out of a promise of the hope that we have before us. And it's why like we're, do- we're going back, you know? <laughs> like this is not one and done. This is why I want us to go back. Because Jesus is forgiving our sins. Jesus is forgiving our moral failures. What a blessing, what a blessing. Praise God for that every day. Let us praise God for that. But if we're acting like moral failure is the only way that sin has touched the world, oh man, preach the gospel to someone who's coming back here from Afghanistan. Preach the gospel who's had their, 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 their homes and families ripped apart by trauma. Preach the gospel to someone whose just mental health is just splitting right down the middle and tell them it's okay that your life is crumbs 
because you've been forgiven of your sins. You have been, that's true. But God doesn't just offer us that. God doesn't just want the moral part of us. He wants everything. He wants the whole, and he will take the whole. I'm gonna stay on my notes here. Um, and of course, like, the, the, the promise that, the, the, the idea that God is meeting us where our hopes are isn't like a blank check for whatever we want. Because you might be thinking, oh, well, John, what if, what if my hope is, uh, you know, I want a Lamborghini and uh, uh, 10, 10 pretty girls to say they like my shoes. Like, that's my hope for creation. And I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be coming down with New Jerusalem. I'll be honest. I don't, I don't, I don't think that'll be the case. However, I will say if your hope is in material things because you feel this like open, busted need to have some kind of luxury to show the world, Jesus will absolutely minister to that. And if you're just a lonely guy who's having a hard time, who really needs a, you know, someone who he thinks is attractive to say how cool he is, there's probably a pretty big wound in your heart that Jesus will also speak to. So this is not this idea that Jesus is going to come in like Oprah, just throwing, throwing free cars to everybody. This is that Jesus is coming to restore what we lost. And what I, wanted, what I just want to remind everyone is that we lost a lot. We lost a lot when sin swooped down and stuck around. For me, uh, this is one thing I've been thinking of a lot recently. I've had a good number of people in my life who are very close to me um, kind of force me, I won't say force, it sounds coercive, but encourage me to recognize that I am not quite as like cool as a cucumber or kind of like that thick outer exoskeleton as I would like. I am, as I, as I jokingly referred to in the beginning of my sermon, kind of a sensitive dude. And let me tell you, it makes me want to rip out my freaking hair. Like, <laughs> I absolutely hate being sensitive. I hate it because it feels like weakness. It feels like vulnerability. And when I'm weak, when I'm vulnerable, I can't protect myself. And I don't like that. And so, over a lot of experiences in my own life, I found myself in this place where uh, I, I struggle with crying. And I know a lot of dudes would be like, ah, no crying, woo, be hard, suffer, stuff stuff down your emotions, die at a young age, yeah. Like, <laughs> if you guys won't say things, I'll have to say things for you, you know. But uh, no. But really, like, I, I realized that, like, because I have subconsciously uh, resented the idea of expressing emotion for such a long time that even when I want to, I can't. And it makes me feel really lousy. And so when I connect to this greater hope that is, uh, that is restoring everything that was lost, I think of this passage at the end of Revelation where Jesus talks about how Oh, man. Where Jesus talks about how he's going to wipe away all the tears and there won't be any more suffering. And uh, when I think about that, I don't just think about the comfort of having my tears wiped away. 
I think of the fact that when I see Jesus, I'm just going to, I'll weep. I'm just going to cry. <laughs> because he's making things new. And even in the deep, dark corners of my own heart, he's going to fix it. And I, uh, I need that hope, you know? He's going he's gonna to make things better. He's going to make things better where things, uh, where things aren't great right now. And, uh, and that's cool. All right, stay on your notes, John. Jeez Louise. You guys are kind. Uh, oh, boy. You just wait. <laughs> um, Andy's been telling me to be vulnerable for the longest time, and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Uh-uh-uh. Jeez Louise. All right. I'm being recorded, so I can't even cuss. I'm not trying to be Mark Driscoll out here. All right, compose myself. Um, but genuinely, genuinely, the promise that Jesus is going to make new, every little spot, every tiny ounce of the places that were damaged by sin, and that's, that's what bothers me so much when we talk about sin like it's just moral failure. Like, don't get me wrong, it is. Morally, I fail. Morally, I miss the mark. But if I look at someone who, uh, who, is, who is abusive to his wife, I will tell that person, you are affected by sin and you need to work with like the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and you need to, like, like, there needs to be repercussions, there needs to be repentance, like all those things need to be there. I can call that sin. But when someone loses their house, we went to Lake Charles, you can open up the front door and just see, it looked like a blend, it looked like the, 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 the inner parts of that house was stuffed into a blender and then poured back in. If I can't call that sin, what am I supposed to call it? Collateral damage? No, it's sin. Like I wanna call everything that has been touched by sin, sin, because that's what it is. And when we have hope, of what's to come, I don't just want to say that the hope to come is that we won't be bad anymore. I want to say that everything will be good. Man, I don't want to preach any more of this stuff. <laughs> uh, I, will, I, will, I will close with this. I might, I might cut a page out because I'm, I'm losing it. But uh, when we started today, we talked about baptism and, uh, and how it was originally looking back to the story of the Exodus and that when the Israelites were able to look back, it wasn't just that. It was that they looked back and said, that's how God rescued us and he's going to do it again. The incredible thing about the New Testament is this, it's that the, Old Test or the New Testament, when it tells us about baptism, it doesn't say to look back to the Exodus story anymore. It says, look to Jesus. Because just as Jesus has gone down into the grave and has come back up to life, that's what your baptism is like. So we're looking back to Jesus because we have something to look forward to. Just like the Israelites we're looking back to see the goodness of God and the promise that we can look forward. We can look forward to a time 
much better than this one. So please, like, what I want, what I want in my prayer for this sermon was I, I want to I wanna stir up hearts of hope. This is the Advent season. This is when we, we come together and we, and we sing songs and we praise like the, the idea that, that Jesus came like a lightning bolt to this world after hundreds of years of no prophets and silence. And he came to just show that this kingdom is coming. This kingdom is coming and that we're going to, we're going to break through the shell that sits around us today. So, so all of us bearing our own loads and our own burdens and our own sufferings, I encourage you in the same way. In Hebrews it says, uh, you need to persevere and do the will of God. It says in just a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. I love that. Just, just a little bit longer. Just a little while longer. He who is coming will come and he will not delay. So that's, that's my hope. I can, I can stand this, uh, this mortal coil for now. Not forever, but I can stand it for a little while longer. What we are now tasting is just that, a taste of the goodness of God. But one day we will feast, we will have so much of it, we won't know what to do with it. Yeah, that's an amen right there. Uh, so now we got the Lord's Supper. Talking of taste, right? Talking of glimpses of what's to come. I love it. I love that it's food, you know? And not just because I'm a big dude. I love that it's food because it show, it's, it's a symbol that one day, like we, like, okay, first of all, no, it's not just a symbol. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are dining with Jesus. But it's also, just like I said before, looking back to look forward. We take the Lord's Supper, having our little piece of bread, little drop of wine, and we're remembering that we're going to sit at a table with him one day. And we're going to talk about who knows what. And at that time, we'll uh, be a lot better. All right. Um, so... We're gonna, so please join us for the Lord's Supper. Right now, uh, we're going to worship in three ways. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. Uh, Mike's going to lead us through a few more songs. There's giving in the back. Please give generously, not because we want money, but because uh, Jesus gave everything that he had to us. So let's do the same. Um, we also are going to take two minutes to confess. And you're saying, John, I thought we're supposed to be joyful. Why am I confessing? Why would I drudge up my sins to make me feel bad? That's the opposite of what's happening. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. There is joy and goodness to be found in confession because the response that we get is you are forgiven. So let's take two minutes. I'm going to get the heck off this stage, and uh, let's pray, and then let's worship. I'll start us off. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for being kind to us. Thank you for giving us stuff to look forward to. Thank you for giving us a gospel and a word that speaks to all of us. Thank you for helping me uh, 
get through a couple sticky parts there. But uh, thank you for the love that I'm feeling right now from you and from all of these people. Um, help us to confess, God, we do fall short, but God, falling short should not stop us from coming to you because we know that it's not a trap door where you snatch us and some clamp comes down on our leg. Like you're not trying to shame us, Father. You're trying to just bring us back to you. So whatever it is, please just help us to speak to you right now and know that we are loved and know that we are inheriting this same promise of good things to come, of Jesus, just as he came, that he will come again. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. May we make good of this silence.